Book Two, Chapter Two of Gloriana, or The Revolution of Nineteen Hundred, by Lady Florence Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gloriana, or The Revolution of Nineteen Hundred. Book Two, Chapter Two. Mr. Speaker, I make no apology to you, sir, or to honourable gentlemen for the bill which I am about to introduce to the House. It is a bill embodying a simple act of justice to woman, a tardy though complete offer by man to repair the wrong which he has done her in the past. Now the bill is simple enough, and contains no ambiguous clauses. It states in terse, clear language what it is that we propose to bestow on woman, the rights to which she is entitled, and the manner in which we suggest that they should take effect. We have rightly, though tardily, bestowed the suffrage upon her. That was an act which should have been performed years ago, but one which has been delayed by much of that unwieldy, unworkable machinery that clogs and hampers the operations of the Westminster Parliament. I refer to the numerous local affairs of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, which, as you know, I have frequently expressed as my opinion might be more profitably, efficiently, and quickly disposed of in the separate countries named, leaving the time that is consumed here in attending to them free for the consideration of great imperial and national social questions, which are, alas, and dangerously so, being pressed into the background. The bestowal of the suffrage on woman is a practical acknowledgment by man that woman has a right to be considered as a being who can reason and who can study humanity in its various phases, and act on her own responsibility. It is not for me here to seek for the causes which have hitherto led man to believe to the contrary. His belief, in a great measure, has been due to woman's weak acceptance of his arbitrary laws. For I do not suppose it will be pretended by anyone that the laws laid down for the sacrifice of woman's freedom were the creation of a woman's brain. But this weak acceptance of these arbitrary laws cannot fairly be ascribed entirely to the fault of woman. Slavery in no form is natural. It is an artificial creation of man's, and woman's slavery cannot be taken as an exception to this maxim. She has, in point of fact, been subjugated to bondage, a bondage which has, in a manner, become second nature to her, and which custom has taught her to regard as a part of the inevitable. But if honourable gentlemen will believe me, nature is stronger than custom, and more powerful than law. Nature is a force that cannot be repressed finally and absolutely. It is like an overwhelming torrent against which you may erect monster dikes, which you may dam up for a time, but all the while the waters are rising, and will find their level in the end. Through countless years woman has been repressed. Every human force and ingenuity of man have been employed to establish her subjection. From religion downwards it has been the cry, Women submit to men, a cry which I may safely say was never originated by herself. Now nature has established a law which is inviolable. It has laid down the distinction between the sexes, but here nature stops. 
Nature gives strength and beauty to man, and nature gives strength and beauty to woman. In this latter instance, man flies in the face of nature, and declares that she must be artificially restrained. Woman must not be allowed to grow up strong like man, because if she did, the fact would establish her equality with him, and this cannot be tolerated. So the boy and the man are allowed freedom of body, and are trained up to become muscular and strong, while the woman, by artificial, not natural laws, is bidden to remain inactive and passive, and in consequence weak and undeveloped. Mentally it is the same. Nature has unmistakably given to woman a greater amount of brain-power. This is at once perceivable in childhood. For instance, on the stage girls are always employed in preference to boys, for they are considered brighter and sharper in intellect and brain-power. Yet man deliberately sets himself to stunt that early evidence of mental capacity, by laying down the law that woman's education shall be on a lower level than that of man's. That natural truths, which all women should early learn, should be hidden from her, and that while men may be taught everything, women must only acquire a narrow and imperfect knowledge both of life and of nature's laws. I maintain to honourable gentlemen that this procedure is arbitrary and cruel and false to nature. I characterise it by the strong word of infamous. It has been the means of sending to their graves unknown, unknelled, and unnamed thousands of women whose high intellects have been wasted, and whose powers for good have been paralysed and undeveloped. To the subjection and degradation of woman I ascribe the sufferings and crimes of humanity. Nor will society be ever truly raised or ennobled or perfected until woman's freedom has been granted, and she takes her rightful place as the equal of man. Viewing this great social problem in this light, we have deemed it our duty to present to Parliament a bill, establishing as law, firstly, the mixed education of the sexes, that is to say, bringing into force the principle of mixed schools and colleges, in which girls and boys, young men and young women, can be educated together. Secondly, the extension of the rights of primogenitor to the female sex, so that while primogenitor remains associated with the law of entail, the eldest born, not the eldest son, shall succeed the owner of property and titles. Also, that all the professions and positions in life, official or otherwise, shall be thrown open as equally to women as to men. And thirdly, that women shall become eligible as members of Parliament, and peeresses in their own right, eligible to sit in the upper house as well as to undertake state duties. Such is the drastic, the sweeping measure by which we desire to wipe off for ever and repair, though tardily, a great wrong. Honourable gentlemen will perceive that we take no halfway course. We are not inclined to accept the doctrine of by degrees believing that this would only prolong the evil and injustice which daily arise from the delay in emancipating the female sex. And I will now as briefly as possible set forth to honourable gentlemen the arguments in favour of the three clauses contained in this bill. With regard to the first one, namely the advisability of educating girls and boys, young women and young men together, 
it is necessary to point out that the system of separating the sexes throughout their educational career has arisen chiefly from the totally different forms of education meted out to each. We hold that these different forms are pernicious and morally unhealthy, calculated to evilly influence the sensual instincts of the male sex, and to instill into the other sex a totally wrong and mischievous idea of the right and wrong side of nature. We are convinced that this system has been productive of an immense amount of immorality and consequent suffering and degradation in the past, and that the system of elevating nature into a mystery is the greatest conceivable incitement to sensuality and immorality. We hold that there should be no mystery or secrecy anent the laws of God. We hold that in creating mystery we condemn God's law, namely nature to be what it is not, indecent. And we hold that the system of separating the sexes, of telling all to the one and enshrouding everything in silence and mystery to the other, has had the evil effect of producing immorality, so wide and far-spreading as to be frightful in its hideousness and magnitude. While it has been productive of millions of miserable marriages, of disease, and of evil immeasurable and appalling. Nature tells us truths which we cannot condemn as falsehoods, however much we may avert our eyes from their light. Nature tells us that it is natural for the male and female sex to be together. If we bring up the young to face this truth, if we bring up the young to accept as natural and rational the laws of pure and unaffected nature, they will accept it as it is. But if we clothe it in boys' and men's eyes in fanciful garments, and leave girls and women in ignorance of its truths, we must expect the terrible and horrible results which have followed such unnatural teaching through centuries of time. We therefore emphatically in this clause record our protest against the system of teaching the young to regard nature in a false light, in other words, to judge of God's laws as impure. We believe such a system of education to be, as we have said, an incentive to the male sex to do wrong, while totally unfitting the female sex to do right. The beginning of all immorality on woman's side has sprung from ignorance, and from the system of mystery and the tendency to declare indecent that which cannot be so, being God's law. In regard to the physical condition of the sexes, we hold that where equal opportunities are afforded to both of strengthening, developing, and improving the body, little material difference will be found in the two. There are many strong men in this world, and there are many strong women, as there are weakly men and weakly women. I have never heard it yet argued that because a man is not strong in body, he is therefore unfitted to take part in the affairs of state. Yet woman's weakness is one of the reasons adduced for excluding her therefrom. We believe that, in a big public school, say, for instance, at Eton, if girls and boys were admitted together, that girls would very soon prove that neither physically nor mentally were they inferior to boys. Nor should such a pernicious doctrine be ever inculcated into the boy's brain. He should not be brought up as he is now to look down on his sisters as inferior to him, 
nor should those sisters be told that he is their superior in strength and mental capacity. It is a doctrine the perniciousness of which is far-reaching, and a distinct infringement of the natural. This leads us to the consideration of the second clause, the adoption by women of those professions hitherto arrogated to themselves solely by men. We are of the opinion that, granted a similar education as men, women are in every way as fitted to occupy those professions. I may be allowed here, perhaps, to refer with pride to that magnificent body of women over two hundred thousand strong, who are now enrolled in the regiments of the women's volunteer forces, of which I am proud to call myself a member, and whose uniform I am fittingly wearing on this occasion. We have before us a splendid evidence of woman's power to combine and come under discipline. These regiments are kept up to their full force, and are all due to individual effort and womanly sacrifice. There is no state aid in the question, and yet the efficiency of each regiment is perfect. Disbanded and scattered, they can be summoned to their ranks at a few days' notice, without fear that they will fail. I point to this as a brilliant example of what women can accomplish in so short a time, by self-sacrifice and simple determination. The same argument of their efficiency to enter the army applies to the navy, and to any other profession hitherto occupied solely by man. But believing as I do, that with the admission of women into the conduct of affairs of state, wars and all their attendant horrors would quickly become a thing of the past, I dwell shortly on the second clause, passing on to the third, which, in conjunction with the first, I regard as the most important part to be examined. It is now eleven years since county councils were established. At the very first elections women were chosen as representatives, but on an appeal to the law they were ousted from their seats. We have wisely remedied that state of things, and no one thinks it odd or extraordinary now to see women sitting in these county councils as members. On the contrary, it is tacitly acknowledged that their presence is, and has been, productive of much good. Well, will honourable gentlemen tell me in what great particulars these county councils differ from Parliament? Both are debating assemblies, and both are conducted on almost similar lines. What is there preposterous and appalling in the suggestion that women should become members of Parliament, and when, by genius or talents, they can attain to such, assume cabinet rank, and claim the right to carry on the affairs of their country? It is merely custom that now debars them, a custom established by the selfishness and arrogance of man, and accepted by woman in the same manner as slaves in the past from long custom accepted the lash from their taskmasters. The taskmasters had established the right to flog their slaves, they had dammed up the slowly rising waters of rebellion, but these rose to their level at last, and overflowed, and slavery is no more. The analogy holds good in the case of woman, whose greater slavery is not yet entirely overcome that it will finally be is as certain as that the hours of time never go back. You may fight against it, you may pile the dikes higher, you may go on damming the rising waters as you will. 
but the time must inevitably come when those dikes and dams will crumble away beneath the overwhelming flood, which your own efforts will have entirely accumulated and brought to its tremendous and irresistible strength. We may be met with many arguments in condemnation of this bill. One will be that it will obstruct the right of marriage. We deny this. We grant you that it may diminish the number of marriages, but we contend that this will be a blessing rather than a curse. Thousands of miserable unions are yearly affected in consequence of woman's unnatural and one-sided position in society. In all these cases she does not marry because, with a knowledge of the subject, with every profession thrown open to her and chance to get on equal to men, she is satisfied that she prefers married life? No. In the cases referred to, she marries for money, or for position, or to escape the restraints of home, or because she has no chance of making her way in the world, and the result is that these marriages are miserable failures, and the offspring of such either diseased in body or in mind, or condemned to grow up to a life of misery, and, in thousands of cases, immorality and crime. There is a problem creeping gradually forward upon us a problem that will have to be solved in time, and that is the steady increase of population. If it advances at its present rate, the hour will come when this earth will not be able to contain it. What then? We may possibly by that time have arranged, with the aid of science, for conveyances which shall carry our superfluous population to other realms of light, but it is equally possible that if this be so, those realms may not consent to receive the emigrants. What then? I believe that, with the emancipation of women, we shall solve this problem now. Fewer children will be born, and those that are born will be of a higher and better physique than the present order of men. The ghastly abortions, which in many parts pass muster nowadays owing to the unnatural physical conditions of society, as men, women, and children will make room for a nobler and higher order of beings, who will come to look upon the production of mankind in a diseased or degraded state as a wickedness and unpardonable crime, against which all men and women should fight and strive. The emancipation of women will, I am convinced, lead up to the creation of the great and the beautiful, to higher morals and nobler aims. Yet, as we are now, what is the sad reality? In this huge, overcrowded city alone, the greatest the world has ever known, amidst rich and poor alike, teems immorality awful and appalling in its magnitude. Deeds are committed of which even some of the most vicious have no idea. Thousands are born in our midst who should never see the light of day. Born in disease, these miserable victims of vice and immorality grow up to beget to others like horrors, and in the teeming millions of this vast city alone exist misery and sin too terrible to contemplate. We submit, therefore, to honourable gentlemen that the first step towards the regeneration and upraising of mankind is the emancipation of woman, and with her emancipation the careful training of the sexes together. Convinced that the time has come, when it would be dangerous to delay this emancipation, we have made it the plank on which the government of the day intend to stand or fall. 
we would further perhaps overstep the bounds of custom and ask that the fate of the measure be decided to-night by a vote taken on it immediately. If the vote be adverse, the government will at once resign and appeal to the country on the clauses of the bill. They are clauses which, I think, to-night it would be but waste of time to discuss. They can be discussed before the country if the bill be rejected. But ere I sit down, I would beg of honourable gentlemen to consider the few words which I have had the honour and I thank God the opportunity to make to them. I would appeal to them to put aside party feeling and vote for the common good as their consciences dictate. I solemnly warn them, however, that they cannot put back the hand of time, and that the hour must be reached at last when the cause of woman will triumph. For, as I have already remarked, nature is like the rising waters of a great flood, which the hand and ingenuity of man may restrain for a time, but which must find a level at last and overflow. The course of nature is unconquerable. No art of man can defeat it, wrought as it is by the hand of God." He has sat down. He has been heard throughout in death-like silence, but now that the ministerialists and estrangeites are cheering him again and again. Yet chill as ice are the nationals and the progressists. They cannot rise to the height of generosity to which he has appealed. In this moment of uncertainty for many, Hector de Strange knows that the bill is doomed. The House has divided. It has recorded its vote. The numbers for and against the emancipation of women have been announced. The author of the bill was no false prophet when he predicted defeat. By a majority of 120 it has been rejected. Then the rafters ring with the wild cheering of the victorious opposition, of that strange medley of parties that Hating each other cordially, they hate still more the high-souled, far-reaching, justice-loving principles of Hector de Strange. Again and again the cheering is renewed, drowning in its volume the counter-cheers of the de Strangeites, wild, almost ungovernable in its elation, full of bitter meaning, echoing with sneering emphasis the triumph of selfishness over right. He sits there quietly through it all hardly seeming to notice this outburst of the victors. He does not grudge them their momentary triumph. His thoughts do not dwell upon the defeat which he has just sustained. They are far away, out beyond the portals of the present, clasping the warm hands of the future, reading the bright letters that twine their golden circlet round its brow, as they flash their meaning forth in the one word, victory. Be of good cheer, brave heart, for victory is at hand. The House has adjourned. It is five minutes past twelve. As the Prime Minister passes out, he is joined by Evie Ravensdale, who at once links his arm within that of his friend and colleague. Although the Duke's carriage is in waiting, these two purposely refrain from entering it, so as to avoid the crowd and the inevitable demonstration which would follow recognition thereby. In this manner they escape detection by the populace. Not entirely, however. Sharp eyes have recognized Hector de Strange. He has not gone many steps when a hand is laid on his shoulder. "'Mr. de Strange,' he hears a voice saying, "'I arrest you in the name of the law.' 
On what charge? he inquires in a quick, startled voice. On the charge, sir, of murdering Lord Westray, is the reply. In a moment his quick brain has taken in the situation, and he knows that resistance is useless. Very well, he answers quietly. I will go with you. Evie, he adds in a calm, composed voice, please go at once to my poor mother. End of Book Two, Chapter Two